Please open your Bibles to the book of Mark. This afternoon we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. What must we do to inherit eternal life? As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray. O Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, pray that this afternoon as we Look into your word that you would teach us. Lord, we need you to teach us more of your laws and precepts to make the desires of our hearts you, that we would long to look into this, to seek you out, to learn more about you. Lord, we grow weary in this world and the problems, and we have nowhere to turn but to you. And I pray that this afternoon that you would refresh us with your word, you would build us up. Lord, I pray for those that cannot be with us here this afternoon, that you would be with them as they face the trials and tribulations, the difficulties of life, where they're at right now, Lord, that you would minister to them. Lord, I pray that you give me the words to speak, Lord, that you would guide and direct me, you open our eyes, help us to be attentive to your word, Lord, and I pray that this afternoon, as we look at this question of eternal life, if there's one here that does not know where they would go, that today might be that day, Lord, that you would open up their eyes and help them to see this afternoon. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what is it in life that we strive for? What things do we set our minds on to pursue in life? And what things do we direct our affections toward? What we, have we been told that we should strive for to bring us happiness? And what in life will fulfill us? These are questions pertinent to our youth here as they set their life plans in place and make plans to work toward them. 
These are probably questions that older adults have asked already and are in the midst of pursuing. And as we grow more mature, we may just look back at where we've been and start to understand the implications of how we answered those questions and how it directed our lives. I think it's fair to say that overall in our culture that we see money portrayed as the single thing that will change our lifestyle. It's probably the most discussed topic that we're told can bring us happiness. I think we can recognize that money can change things and can make certain parts of life easier for us. And I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that many think that money will solve most of life's issues. And because of that idea, it is often the main thing that's pursued. But if we were ever to attain wealth, what might we set our sights on next? Maybe authority and power. Because with those two come respect. If we're honest, we tend to want respect from others. We may even want to feel important to feel like people value us and they want to know us and to hear from us and talk to us. We see that idea portrayed everywhere from Hollywood to politics to the workplace. But achieving those two would more than likely take some time and we would grow older while in our pursuit to achieve them. But let's imagine we've attained those two in our lives. Being one that has achieved so much, what would we go for next? Perhaps being younger in youth. Because what good is money and power if we cannot live long enough to enjoy the both of them? How many products and ways do we see to make us look and feel younger? We have creams and potions and pills and surgical procedures to help us to feel younger. I still recall from grade school history class, the Ponce de Leon in Florida, he was looking for that fountain of youth. We can see how we've never changed. So wealth, power, and youth, what more would we need after that? As humans, we seem to never be content, so what would be next? So sooner or later, we would be thinking about what happens after we leave this life. Sooner or later, our own mortality would cross our minds. Sooner or later, our bodies would dictate to us that we will not live forever. We can speculate that perhaps the man in this story was in quite a good position in life, maybe even thinking he had this life taken care of, Perhaps that prompted him considering the next life. So with that picture in your head, the wealth, the power, the youth, and the afterlife, let's turn toward this passage and think about the man that we read about. All the things thus far I've mentioned are merely speculation on my part on what preceded this event. And although we're in Mark this afternoon, I'm pulling information from the account as written by Matthew and Luke also, because they each tell you a, a little bit of a, a different story and add some different tidbits. And this passage and the others related are a great example of the Spirit's supernatural influence on men and what to write. The Scripture being God-breathed, yet the men who wrote this still had their own different personalities showing in what they wrote. In the three different passages where this story is written, we can see different aspects of their personalities as they were directed by God. Differences in what they wrote are not error because the Bible, as a product of men writing, is, is divinely inspired to develop the inerrant Word of God. But it gives us some insight and gives us a better picture of this story if we look at the other accounts. So if we examine the facts of this account in Mark along with the same account in Matthew and Luke, we can see that the man in the story, he is actually young, and he is wealthy, and he has some position of power because he's referred to as a ruler. That's not speculation, but fact that we can obtain from the three passages where this event is described to us. And the passage does not tell us specifically, but somehow this rich young ruler had heard about Jesus. Somehow he had heard that Jesus Christ 
knew something about eternal life. We can deduce that from that passage. It's a logical conclusion considering what's stated. So it is at this point where we pick up and Mark describes this encounter, this providential meeting with this man and the Messiah. It carries an important message for all of us and is one that God chose to preserve for us to know today. Out of every event that occurred through the time when Jesus walked this earth, this one is one that God chose to preserve for us today. At the end of the Gospel of John, John states that there were many other things that Jesus did. If all of them were written, John supposed the world could not contain the books of the things that were written. So what we have here is important for us. It's not just a story to consume our time this afternoon. It's a word of God that has been preserved for us to learn from, to teach us. This passage contains a message that verse after verse points us back to Christ, to the one that provides the redemption we need for eternal life. So let's roll up our sleeves, so to speak, and dive in, never forgetting how miraculous it is to even have the privilege to hear and to study this event that took place so many years ago. There's a lot we do not know about this man and his background. We don't know what happened prior to this. We don't know what happened after this. We don't have every fact associated with this event, but what we do have is what is important to us today. What we do have is more than enough to reveal to us the facts concerning eternal life. It starts off, he says, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So our Lord Jesus Christ was setting out on a journey. He was in Judea on his way to Jerusalem. And we get a description of someone running up to him, kneeling down and addressing him as good teacher and asking him about eternal life. So we can pull a few things from this description that will give us some insight into this and to this man. So first it says the man ran up. We have no idea who this is, although we'll find out through this passage some descriptions of him. Really, though, exactly who he is doesn't hold any importance to us. Whether we can relate to his life circumstances or not we can probably identify with the question on his mind. So he ran up, so we can see here some sense of urgency. It's not often we run up to someone we do not know unless there was something important that we needed from them. So no one, he ran up to our Lord, tells us that he knew something of what Jesus was preaching. He had heard about Christ Jesus, as I guess many people would have in this day and time. So as he gets to Jesus, what does he do? Does he kiss him on the cheek, a common greeting? Does he blurt out his question? No, it says he kneels before him. And by the use of this word kneel, it tells us that he treated Christ with some form of respect, although we'll see he did not fully understand who he was. He knelt before him and he asked him the single most important question of his life. And I'll tell every one of you right now, whether you realize it or not, this is the most important question of your life too. The question of eternal life. If we look to Luke 18, 18, we can see another aspect of this man. It states there that he was a ruler. A ruler meaning he had a position of respect. He was some type of high official in his civil life. We go down to verse 22, we can see that he was wealthy. And if we go to Matthew 19, 20, we can see one additional trait of this man. He was young. So he was young, rich, and has some position of power or authority. We can certainly say that he was in a good spot in that day and time. He certainly was not described as someone that was lacking for anything in the physical world. I think I can safely say that he was set from a materialistic and a worldly viewpoint. I can imagine that in his mind he may have been at ease from obtaining the physical needs of life. Yet there was one issue 
that was so pressing to him that he ran up to Christ, so urgent he had to hurry and to ask him. So he approaches him and kneels before him and addresses him as good teacher. This description gives what I think is an important insight into understanding this passage. He did not address him as Jesus. He did not address him as Messiah. He addresses Christ, Jesus, as good teacher. This description, I think, reveals this man misunderstood who Jesus was. He sees Christ as only a teacher. If you think about that today, if someone told us that Jesus Christ was only a good teacher, what would we think of them? We would think that they misunderstood or did not know Scripture. So addressing Jesus as good teacher tells us he does not fully understand who Jesus was. He certainly did not address him as a Messiah that they were looking for, the only one that could bring eternal life. But he sees Christ as a teacher that may know the way to eternal, to eternal life, but not the one that brings eternal life. This isn't something abnormal as Jesus is called teacher throughout the New Testament. In fact, in in Matthew 26, he calls himself teacher. But this man does not recognize Jesus as a Messiah, the one by whom eternal life comes. And he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So we can scrutinize that phrase a little bit right now, come up with a few errors in this man's thought process. So first off, this man wants to do something for eternal life. If we have a correct understanding of Scripture, we obviously will say that there is no work we can do to gain eternal life. But this man is asking, he's asking, what can I do? What work can I accomplish to obtain, to acquire, to possess eternal life? I'm thinking probably similar to the way he worked toward his riches and power. He wants to work toward that eternal life. And you may be thinking, Morgan, you're reading too much in this passage, so let's go to Matthew 19 and see how Matthew words it. And there it says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So that backs up what I stated. This man is tying works he can do with gaining eternal life. And that is not an uncommon response for us today. If you ask people why they would get to heaven, they most often say because they are good, because they do this or that and try to be the best they can. It all seems to revolve around what they can do, just like this man, what they can do to inherit eternal life. So Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I'm pretty sure this man was waiting for a different response. I suspect that he may even have something in his head he thought Jesus would tell him. He was eager to hear what he needed to do, but Jesus responds that nobody is good except God. So why this statement? Is Jesus stating that he is not good? No, that's not what he said. He said there is none good but God. So why would he say that? Romans 3.10 tells us the same thing. It says none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is quoted from the Old Testament from Psalm 14, where it reads, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand. Seek after God. They've all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. When I consider that statement, it appears to me that Jesus tells this man 
that only God is good so he would understand that Jesus is God. This man calls Jesus good and Jesus states back that only God is good. This man should make that correlation that he's standing before God. He needed to know that the one he approached held those keys to eternal life. He needed to know that the one he was speaking to could offer him that well of water springing up into everlasting life. In the 8th chapter of John, Jesus told the Pharisees that unless they believed, they would die in their sins. They did not believe Jesus was a Christ, a Messiah, nor did they believe he was sent from the Father. The Jews wanted to stone Christ for saying he and the Father are one. We need to understand who Jesus is. We do not need a deep intellectual knowledge of God for salvation, but we do need to understand that Jesus is God. Nobody is good but God. And with that quick and brief statement on one of the most basic attributes of God, Jesus moves on. He tells him, he says, you know the commandments. He was familiar with the commandments. You know the commandments. Jesus starts off with the nature of God. He moves on to the moral law of God. This man started by asking what goods he can do. He was linking salvation to moral acts. So Jesus named some morally good things that he was familiar with. Jesus lists some of the commandments which he knew this man was familiar with. He told him, you know them. If we look at this in Matthew, he gives a bit more detail. He says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. So the question is, does keeping the law provide salvation for us? It does not. We cover this in Galatians, specifically Galatians 2. Paul says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. In the last sentence in Galatians 2, Paul states, For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And in chapter 3, he says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. So that's crystal clear from Scripture. So why does Christ state this to him? Once you know who God is, we can understand sin and its ramifications. We have the entire Old Testament showing us the law And how man could not perfectly keep it. As we see in James 2, we fail in one part of the law, we are guilty of all. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. Jesus was a fulfillment of the law. He kept it perfectly and became our sacrifice. I think that's what Christ is doing here, showing that we cannot uphold the law and we need something else. The purpose of the law is to lead us to Christ. Jesus is using it to point to himself. And this man tells me, he says, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. So in his mind, he sees himself as keeping the law. In fact, he states he's kept it from his youth. We have no reason to believe he was less than truthful in his statement, although I believe he was misguided. Perhaps he was able to keep these specific ones Jesus mentions, at least outwardly and physically. He probably never physically murdered anyone. He probably physically never committed adultery. He never stole, lied, or defrauded anyone. He always honored his father and his mother. But that's a pretty tall order. Looking at this from purely a worldly perspective, even if I think of the very best person I know, I cannot think of anyone who has done that from their youth. If we consider David, who is described in the Old Testament as a man after God's own heart, We see even he was nowhere near keeping the commandments. We see how it is unlikely, I say impossible, that he actually kept these. 
Now, Jesus could have explained to him how these commandments really intend to get to the heart of the matter. It's not holding to the letter of the law with these, but the intentions of the heart. What did Jesus teach about murder in Matthew 5? He said, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. A few verses later, Jesus addresses adultery. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And in Matthew 15, Jesus explains that these are heart issues. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So how do we stack up against that? How would he stack up against that? And this man is not unlike us. Every one of us at one time or another would have given ourselves that very same assessment. At least until God opened up our eyes to our sin as it contrasts his perfection and his righteousness. We do not know the reason. These passages do not reveal it. But for whatever reason, Jesus does not question him on his assertion of keeping these. But he does dig deeper. And the one thing Jesus knows, this man loves. He knows what is truly important to him. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. After the man's response, Jesus looks at him, discerning his condition. He was looking intently at him. Jesus was not fooled by what he stated. And loving this man, he tells him that he lacks but one thing. One thing that separates him from eternal life in heaven. Only one thing he lacks. Now think about that. This in itself is a lesson for us. It describes our humanity and the fact that there are things that separate us from God. This man claimed he had kept all the commandments Jesus mentioned. And Jesus tells this rich young man, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and helpless, and you'll exchange that treasure on this earth with treasure in heaven. And he said, once you do that, come and follow me. Jesus told him to give up everything he had, the money, the power, the position, the status, with nothing left, in essence, telling him to empty himself, then he was to follow Jesus. So why did he tell him this? Does God forbid wealth in believers? That's not the point here. He's not stating a hard and fast rule that nobody can have money and come to Christ, although he will get into some warnings to abide by with wealth. I think the point that Jesus is making here is that there are things that separate us from God, that we need to empty ourselves of those things that are more important to us than God. For those that were here when Pastor Brian preached through Exodus 20 and the commandments, we saw that that God must be first. He gets the preeminence. He is a jealous God. Matthew 6, Jesus described this. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How can God be first when our hearts are primarily attracted to the physical things of this world? A few verses later, he continues, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. It's not necessarily money. It's a fact that he cannot serve two masters. We must remove those things that come between God and us. 
There was one thing that separated this man from God, one thing that was more important to him than God, and Jesus knew that because he looked at him and he discerned that. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Disheartened, this word gives us a good picture of his countenance when he heard this. He was disheartened at that saying, his appearance was gloomy. Disappointment showed in his face as he walked away, unwilling to part with the things of this world. Jesus knew those possessions were more important to him than Jesus was himself. Were those things idols to him, perhaps? Maybe these things are what drove him in his life and gave him fulfillment. It was obviously more important to him than eternal life. Remember, we serve a jealous God. If we're unwilling to part with the physical things in this life and make them a priority over our Lord, we can never have salvation. God will not take second place. He must be first. Think about that. Only one thing separated him from eternal life. This man was willing to trade an eternity in heaven for years on this earth with physical possessions. Can our minds even wrap around the idea of eternity, of no end of time, something our whole lives are revolved around, the the concept of time? This man traded the limited for the unlimited, something we cannot even comprehend. But what he had here was more valuable to him than what he could have for all of eternity. He went away sorrowful and could not part with what he had. His faith was not in Christ, but in his possessions. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So Jesus looked around. What do you think he looked for? Perhaps he looked at the man walking away sad. Maybe he was looking at each disciple, seeing their countenance. Perhaps Jesus looked at others around them and knew they too would place money and possessions at a higher priority than eternal life in heaven. None of the accounts give us an insight into why he looked around, but once again we see the perspective of Mark, a little different, giving details from his perspective that others do not, stating that Jesus loved him. Jesus tells them that there are some with many possessions that are not willing to part with them. These things we possess give a false security and cause us to trust in them to the point that we think we do not need God. Do you see yourself in the way this man is thinking? Remember the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12. It tells of a rich man whose land produced so bountifully so much that he had no place to store it all. So he tore down his barns and he built larger ones and he filled them and it pleased him with security. And he said he could relax, he could eat, and he could drink, and he could be merry because he was set up in this life. He had comfort in the physical things, but God stated that he was a fool. That night his soul was required of him. Where would those things go when he was gone? What good did they do him? The disciples were amazed at this, that the wealthy would have a hard time entering heaven. In that day, as well in as places in our day, people erroneously consider all those with great possessions as being blessed by God. In reality, it is only by God that we have what we have, but it, you can't make that correlation just because someone's got something, God has blessed them by it. But you notice that Christ did not say, he never said it was impossible. He did not say that nobody with wealth can only go to heaven. He stated it would be difficult. He really said that 
proverb of a camel going through the eye of a needle. So why were the disciples astonished? Why did they ask then who could be saved? I think in their eyes, this man was very prosperous and seen as being blessed by God. Maybe they looked at him and took him for his word that he really did keep those commandments. So this seemingly upright young fellow who was wealthy, if he could not gain eternal life in heaven, then who possibly could? It may seem impossible then, but God, who sees the heart of man, is stated in Hebrews 7, can save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Christ. God can transcend the allure of wealth for his redeemed, because with him nothing is impossible. So to this point, it, good old Peter. Peter jumps in. He's always quick to speak. He, he states that unlike the rich young ruler, they have given up everything and followed Christ. What this young man could not do, he's saying they'd already done. Maybe Peter was trying to give himself some kind of assurance after being amazed at what, what Christ said. But Jesus tells them that those that have given things up for Christ will receive a hundredfold in this time with persecutions and then eternal life. Jesus said, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions? It's interesting how persecutions was added to the list of things that are gained. So what does that mean? Do we take the scripture to mean that the more we give up, the more God will give us these earthly possessions? It's not the case. I think Jesus is telling them that what we gain is not physical. It is the ability to have joy in our lives, even through the persecution. That what we gain in this life and are blessed by are the spiritual things. I think if we look at this, we can see right now in Grace Family Church how what Jesus stated to the disciples, we are reaping today. What he said in this very passage we see here today. How so? So think about this as we try to understand the houses and brothers and sisters, mothers, children, and land. As part of this body, if my house burned down, if I had a need of a place to stay, I could call a brother or sister here, and I would have that. You might be thinking that's only because I'm an elder. It's not true. I've seen this portrayed already among this body to brothers and sisters, not because of the position, status, or likability, but because of Christ. If one of you had a need, I know that there are those here. It would step up without hesitation to meet that need. I know because I've seen it. We not only have that here at Grace Family Church, but I'm sure we could think of our brothers and sisters in Christ elsewhere that would do the same for us. I have two physical brothers, but a hundredfold more in Christ now. I take that any day over physical possessions. We have seen the words of Christ spoken to these disciples fulfilled in our lives today. We've already received what Christ stated to us. So even with the persecutions and troubles we face, we have our brothers and sisters in Christ and the grace of God to get us through it joyfully no matter what we face. The redeemed have something that the lost do not. And I'm amazed at times how the lost can handle the difficulties of this world without a Savior to sustain them. How can anyone face this world outside of Christianity with all that's going on? But as a redeemed, we have our earnest. God has given us a small part of our inheritance now 
with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, quite literally, God with us. No matter what we face here, that is one thing that can never be taken away from us. And one day we will see our Savior and be with him forever, with the one who died for us. In Jesus' last statement, but many who are first will be last and the last first. This ties into directly to what I stated about the houses and brothers and sisters and children. It describes both how the redeemed serve one another and how about how we properly recognize our position with God being first. He has the preeminence. This is a con- concept phrased another way in other areas of the Gospels where it says, For he that is least among you all shall be great. In other areas, the idea is phrased like this, Whosoever then shall humble himself like this little child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Philippians 2.3 is stated in this way, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. John the Baptist stated the same thing when he said, Christ must increase, but I must decrease. It is the idea of submitting ourselves, putting others before us, a true desire from the heart where we see others first before us. And that starts with putting God first. So does this story portray us? Is our trust placed in our possessions? Do we get security from those? Have we elevated what we own to the status of an idol in our lives? Have we coveted having more and more? To the redeemed, we allow these things to separate us from God, from serving him in a way that he deserves. We suppress our sanctification by our sin. To those that do not yet know Christ, unknowingly, those desires have pushed you away from eternal life. They have blinded you into thinking you are secure in your possessions. Christ could see the heart, but we cannot. It may not be possessions that grip you. It could be status or education or power. So what is it? What things in your life need to be removed that are separating you from God? Where do you stand today? If you ask that question to Christ, what would he see in you? Would you choose to walk away grieved due to your possessions? Or would you gladly trade it all right now for eternal life? Redeem this applies to us. We may already have salvation But what things have we let infiltrate our lives, those seemingly benign things that have secretly become idols to us, separating us from the God we claim to serve? Have we let the world creep into our lives? In John 6, we read where some of Jesus' followers turned away from and never came back. And Jesus looked to the twelve and asked if they wanted to go as well. And Peter replied, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and, now, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. If you turn away from him, where else will you go? It is he, the Christ, that has the words of life. Are you wearied by the troubles of this world? Have you no place else to go for comfort when the world has failed you? Jesus stated, come to me, all who labor and of every laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You will find comfort and rest in him. We need to understand it is all about what Christ has done for us. Jesus stated in John 17 that this is eternal life, that we know the Father 
the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. When we understand who God is, we get an idea of our sin and how we have transgressed God, leading us to repentance of our sin. Believe in him and what he has done, how he perfectly upheld the law, how he was crucified for our sins, how he took on the wrath of God in the place of those that have been redeemed, how he was resurrected and sits at the right hand of the Father. He is a Messiah and the one through which we obtain salvation. Our faith and trust needs to be placed in him and in him alone. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, what a great blessing that you preserved your word for us. What we know here, Lord, is all we need to know about what's required for eternal life. Lord, I pray for the redeemed, Lord, that we wouldn't let those things separate us from you. It wouldn't interfere with our sanctification, clinging to those things of the world that bring us nothing. I pray, Lord, you would show us those things, we repent of those things, we return from those things that one day we will stand before you holy and blameless because of our Savior. And Lord, I pray for those that don't know Christ like that man, don't understand who he was. He did not understand. He stood before God in the flesh, the one that was manifest to make that sacrifice to pay for our sins. I pray, Lord, there's someone here today that doesn't know that, that you would open up their eyes. You'd help them to see that, to understand that Jesus is the Christ. He is a Messiah that was waited for, that one we needed to go pay that price for us, that one we needed to be our sacrifice for our sins, the sins we cannot pay for on our own. Lord, I pray you might open up their eyes today. Lord, I pray as we, as we continue to seek you out through the word, you would continue to teach us, Lord. You would build us up. You would show us each time we read, Lord, the great blessings you've given to us, and they are not the physical things you provided. We thank you for those spiritual blessings. We thank you that we can say that we have God with us and the indwelling of the Spirit. Lord, make us into people that are pleasing to you. Lord, help us to be busy, to be in those fields that are whitened to harvest. That when you come, and you come for us, and you will, we'll be serving you. Lord, we pray that you continue to bless your church and build your church and equip your church to be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.